Welcome to my first podcast, reading The Lovely Bones by Alice Sebold, where I read with mistakes. I think if I just leave the mistakes in there, it might just sound like I'm a friend reading to you. Whether you are listening to The Lovely Bones or any of the books for the first time, or just need something to fall asleep or to relax to. Chapter 1 My name was Salmon, like the fish, first name Susie. I was 14 when I was murdered on December 6, 1973. In newspaper photos of missing girls from the 70s, most looked like me, white girls with mousy brown hair. This was before kids of all races and genders started appearing on milk cartons or in the Daily Mail. It was still back when people believed things like that didn't happen. In my junior high yearbook, I had a quote from a Spanish poet my sister had turned me on to, Juan Ramon Jimenez. It went like this. If they give you ruled paper, write the other way. I chose it both because it expressed my contempt for my structured surroundings, all of the classroom, and because not being some dopey quote from a rock group. I thought it marked me as literary. I was a member of the chess club and chem club and read everything I tried to make in Miss Delmenko's home at class. My favorite teacher was Mr. Bot, who taught biology and liked to animate the frogs and crawfish we had to dissect by making them dance in their waxed pans. I wasn't killed by Mr. Bot, by the way. Don't think every person you're going to meet in here is suspect. That's the problem. You never know. Mr. Bot came to my memorial, as may I add, in almost the entire junior high school. I was never so popular and cried quite a bit. He had a sick kid. We all knew this, so when he laughed at his own jokes, which were rusty way before I had him, we laughed too, forcing it sometimes just to make him happy. His daughter died a year and a half after I did. She had leukemia, but I never saw her in my heaven. My murderer was a man from our neighborhood. My mother liked his border flowers, and my father talked to him once about fertilizer. My murderer believed in old-fashioned things like eggshells and coffee grounds, which he said his own mother had used. My father came home smiling, making jokes about how the man's garden might be beautiful, but it would stink to high heaven once the heat wave hit. But on December 6, 1973, it was snowing. I took a shortcut through the cornfield back back from the junior high. It was dark out because the days were shorter in winter, and I remember how the broken cornstalks made my walk more difficult. The snow was filing lightly, like a flurry of small hands, and I was breathing through my nose until it was running so much I had to open my mouth. Six feet from where Mr. Harvey stood, I stuck my tongue out to taste a snowflake. Don't let me startle you, Mr. Harvey said. Of course... In a cornfield in the dark, I was startled. 
After I was dead, I thought about how there had been the light scent of cologne in the air that had not been paying attention or thought it was coming from one of the houses up ahead. Mr. Harvey, I said. You're the olden salmon girl, right? Yes. How are your folks? Although the eldest in my family and good at acting... Although the eldest in my family and good at acing a science quiz, I never felt uncomfortable. I've never felt comfortable with adults. Fine, I said. I was cold. But the natural authority of his age and the added fact he was a neighbor and I talked to my father about fertilizer rooted me to the spot. I built something back here, he said. Would you like to see? I'm sort of cold, Mr. Harvey, I said. And my mom likes me home before dark. It's after dark, Susie, he said. I wish now that I had known this was weird. I had never told him my name. I guess I thought my father had told him one of the embarrassing anecdotes he saw merely as loving. As loving testaments to his children. My father was the kind of dad who kept a nude photo of you when you were three in the downstairs bathroom, the one that guests would use. He did this to my little sister, Lindsay, thank God. At least I was spared that indignity. But he liked to tell a story about how, once Lindsay was born, I was so jealous that one day, while he was on the phone in the other room, I moved down to the couch. He could see me where he, from where he stood and tried to pee on top of Lindsay in her carrier. The story humiliated, humiliated me every time he told it. To the pastor of our church, to the neighbor, Mrs. Steed, who was a therapist, and whose take on it he wanted to hear, and everyone who ever said, Susie has a lot of spunk. Spunk, my father would say. Let me tell you about spunk. But he launched immediately into his Susie Pete on Lindsay story. As it turned out, my father had not mentioned us to Mr. Harvey or told him the Susie Pete on Lindsay story. Mr. Harvey would later say these words to my mother when he ran into her on the street. I heard about the horrible, horrible tragedy. What was your daughter's name again? Susie. My mother said, racing up under the weight of it. A weight that she naively hoped might lighten the day, not knowing that it would only go on to hurt in new and varied ways for the rest of her life. Mr. Harvey told her the usual. I hope they get the bastard. I'm sorry for your loss. I was in my heaven by that time, bidding my limbs together and couldn't believe his audacity. The man has no shame, I said to Franny, my intake counselor. Exactly, she said, and made her point as simply as that. There's not a lot of bullshit in my heaven. Mr. Mr. Harvey said it would only take a minute, so I followed him a little further into the cornfield, where there were fewer stacks, where fewer stacks were broken off because no one used it as a shortcut to the junior high. My mom had told my baby brother, Buckley, that the corn in the field was inedible when he asked why no one from the neighborhood ate it. The corn is for horses, not humans, she said. Not dogs? Buckley asked. No, my mother answered. 
Not dinosaurs? Buckley asked. And it went like that. I made a little hiding place, said Mr. Harvey. He stopped and turned to me. I don't see anything, I said. I was aware that Mr. Harvey was looking at me strangely. I'd had older men look at me that way since I'd lost my baby fat. They usually didn't lose their marbles over me when I was wearing my royal blue parka and yellow elephant bell-bottoms. His glasses were small and round with gold frames, and his eyes looked out over them at me. You should be more observant, Susie, he said. I felt like observing my way right out of there, but I didn't. Why didn't I? Franny said these questions were fruitless. You didn't, and that's that. Don't mull over it. It does no good. You're dead, and you have to accept it. Try again, Mr. Harvey said, and he squatted down and knocked against the ground. What's that? I asked. My ears are freezing. I wouldn't wear the multicolored cap with the pom-pom and jingle bells that my mother had made me one Christmas. Shoved it in the pocket of my parka instead. I remember that I went over and stomped on the ground near him. It felt harder even than frozen earth, which was pretty hard. It's wood, Mr. Harvey said. It keeps the entrance from collapsing. Other than that, it's all made out of earth. What is it? I asked. I was no longer cold or weirded out by the look he had given me. I was like I was in science class. I was curious. Come and see. It was awkward to get into. That much he admitted once we were both inside the hole. I was so amazed by how he had made a chimney that would draw smoke out if he ever chose to build a fire that the awkwardness of getting in and out of the hole wasn't even on my mind. You could add to that, escape wasn't a concept I had any real experience with. The worst I'd had to escape was Artie, a strange-looking kid at school whose father was a mortician. He liked to pretend he was carrying a needle full of embalming fluid around with him. On his notebooks, he would draw needles spilling dark drips. This is Nito, I said to Mr. Harvey. He could have been the hunchback in Notre Dame, whom we had read about in French class. I didn't care. I completely reverted. I was my brother Buckley on our day trip to the Museum of Natural History in New York. We'd fallen in love with the huge skeletons on display. I didn't use the word neato in public since elementary school. Like taking candy from a baby, Franny said. I can still see the hole like it was yesterday. And it was. Life is a perpetual yesterday for us. It was the size of a small room. The mud room in our house. Stay where we keep our mud boots and slickers. And where mom had managed to fit a washer and dryer. One on top of the other. I could almost stand up in it. But Mr. Harvey had to stoop. He created a bench along the sides of it by the way he dug it out. He immediately sat down. Look around, he said. I stared at it in amazement. The dugout shelf above him, where he had placed matches, a row of batteries, and a battery-hard fluorescent lamp that cast the only light in the room, and 
eerie light that would make his features hard to see when he was on top of me. There was a mirror on the shelf and a razor and shaving cream. I thought that was odd. Wouldn't he do that at home? But I guess I figured that a man who had a perfectly good split level and then built an underground room only half a mile away had to be kind of Lulu. My father had a nice way of describing people like him. The man's a character, that's all. So I guess I was thinking that Mr. Harvey was a character. I liked the room and it was warm and I wanted to know how he had built it what the mechanics of the thing were and where he'd learned to do something like that. By that time, the Gilbert's dog found my elbow three days later and brought it home with a telling corn husk attached to it. Mr. Harvey had closed it up. I was in transit during this. I didn't get to see him sweat it out, remove the wood enforcement, bag any evidence along with my body parts except that elbow. By the time I had popped up enough by the time I popped up with enough wherewithal to look down at the goings-on on Earth, I was more concerned with my family than anything else. My mother sat on a hard chair by the front door with her mouth open, her pale face paler than I'd ever seen it, her blue eyes staring. My father was driven into motion. He wanted to know details and to comb the cornfield along with the cops. I still thank God for a small detective named Len Fennerman. He assigned two uniforms to take my dad into town and have him point out all the places I'd hung out with my friends. The uniforms kept my dad busy in one mall for the whole first day. No one had told Lindsay, who was 13 and would have been old enough, or Buckley, who was four, and would, to be honest, never fully understand. Mr. Harvey asked me if I would like a refreshment. That was how he put it. I said I had to go home. Be polite and have a Coke, he said. I'm sure the other kids would. What other kids? I built this for the kids in the neighborhood. I thought it could be some... I thought it could be some sort of clubhouse. I don't think I believed this even then. I thought he was lying, but I thought it was a pitiful lie. I imagined he was lonely. We had read about men like him in health class. Men who never married and ate frozen meals every night and were so afraid of rejection that they didn't even own pets. I felt sorry for him. Okay, I said, I'll have a Coke. In a little while, he said, Aren't you warm, Susie? Why don't you take off your parka? I did. After this, he said, You're very pretty, Susie. Thanks, I said, even though he gave me what my friend Clarissa and I dubbed as the skeevies. Do you have a boyfriend? No, Mr. Harvey, I said. I swallowed the rest of my Coke, which is a lot. And I said, I gotta go, Mr. Harvey. This is a cool place, but I have to go. He stood up and did his hunchback number by the six dug-in steps that led into the world. I don't know why you think you're leaving. I talked so that I would not have to take in this knowledge. Mr. Harvey was no character. He made me feel skeevy and icky now that he was blocking the door. Mr. Harvey, 
I really have to get home. Take off your clothes. What? Take your clothes off, Mr. Harvey said. I want to check that you're still a virgin. I am Mr. Harvey, I said. I want to make sure your parents will thank me. My parents? They only want good girls, he said. Mr. Harvey, I said, please let me leave. You aren't leaving, Susie. You're mine now. Fitness was not a big thing back then. Aerobics was barely a word. Girls were supposed to be soft, and only the girls we suspected were butch would climb the ropes at school. I fought hard. I fought hard as I could not to let Mr. Harvey hurt me. But my heart as I could was not hard enough, not even close. I was soon lying down on the ground, in the ground with him on top of me, panting and sweating and sweating, having lost his glasses in the struggle. I was so alive then. I thought it was the worst thing in the world, to be lying flat on my back with a sweating man on top of me, to be trapped inside the earth, and to have no one know where I was. I thought of my mother. My mother would be checking the dial of the clock on her oven. It was a new oven, and she loved that it had a clock on it. I can time things to the minute, she told her own mother, a mother who couldn't care less about ovens. She would be worried, but more angry than worried, at my lateness. As my father pulled into the garage, she would rush about fixing him a cocktail, a dry sherry, and put on an ex- exasperated face. You know junior high, she would say. Maybe it's spring fling. Abigail, my father would say. How can it be spring fling when it's snowing? Having failed with this, my mother might rush Buckley into the room and say, Play with your father. Well, she ducked into the kitchen and took a nip of sherry for herself. Mr. Harvey started to press his lips against mine. They were blubbery and wet, and I wanted to scream, but I was too afraid and too exhausted from the fight. I'd been kissed once by someone I liked. His name was Ray, and he was Indian. He had an accent and was dark. I wasn't supposed to like him. Clarissa called his large eyes with their half-closed lids freakadelic. But he was nice and smart and helped me cheat on my algebra exam while pretending he hadn't. He kissed me by my locker the day before we turned in our photos for the yearbook. When the yearbook came out at the end of the summer, I saw that under his picture, he'd answered this standard, my heart belongs to, with Susie Salmon. I guess he had had plans. I remember that his lips were chapped. Don't, Mr. Harvey, I managed. And I kept saying that one word a lot. Don't. And I said, please, a lot too. Franny told me that almost everyone begged please before dying. I want you, Susie, he said. Please, I said. Don't, I said. Sometimes I combine them. Please don't, or don't please. It was like I was insisting that a key works when it doesn't, or yelling, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it, as a softball goes sailing over you into the into the stands. Please don't. But he grew tired of my of hearing me plead. 
He reached into the pocket of my parka and balled up the hat my mother had made me, smashing it into my mouth. The only sound I made after that was the weak tinkling of bells as he kissed his wet lips down my face and neck and then began to shove his hands under my shirt. I wept. I began to leave my body. I began to inhabit the air and the silence. I wept and struggled so I'd feel, so I would not feel. He ripped open my pants, not having found the visible zipper my mother had artfully sewn into their side. Big white panties, he said. I felt huge and bloated. I felt like a sea in which he stood and pissed and shat. I felt the corners of my body were turning in on themselves and out. Like in Cat's Cradle, which I played with Lindsay just to make her happy. He started working himself over me. Susie, Susie, I heard my mother calling. Dinner is ready. He was inside me. He was grunting. We're having string beans and lamb. I was the mortar. He was the pestle. Your brother has a new finger painting, and I made apple crumb cake. Mr. Harvey made me lie still underneath him and listen to the beating of his heart and the beating of mine. I might skipped like a rabbit and houses thudded a hammer against cloth. We lay there with our bodies touching and I shook a powerful knowledge to Colt. He'd done his thing to me and I had lived. That was all. I was still breathing. I heard his heart. I smelled his breath. The decker surrounding us smelled like what it was. Moist dirt were urns where worms and animals lived their daily lives. I could have yelled for hours. I knew he was going to kill me. I did not realize then that it was an animal already dying. Why don't you get up? Mr. Harvey said as he rolled to the side and then crouched over me. His voice was gentle, encouraging, a lover's voice on a late morning, a suggestion, not a command. I could not move, I could not get up. When I would not, was it only that, only that I would not follow his suggestion? He leaned to the side and fell over his head across the ledge where his razor and shaving cream sat. He brought back a knife, unsheathed. It smiled at me, curving up in a grin. He took the hat from my mouth. Tell me you love me, he said. Gently I did. The end came anyway.